Welcome to the new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Isabel Moreno Hay, Clinic Director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and any other associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AAOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. Before we get started, I would like to thank Dr. Steven Scrivani, Chair of the Continuing Education Oversight Committee of the AOP, for his support and guidance on this new project of educational podcast in which we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing about one of the most frustrating experiences that we can encounter as dentists in our practice, and that is the persistence of pain after dental treatment. In some cases, it might be due to a failure in our procedure, and we can actually detect that we might have missed a root canal during an endo treatment, or maybe the filling was too close to the pulp chamber, and that will explain why the patient is complaining of uh, postoperative dental sensitivity. But what about those cases in which we do not see any clinical signs to explain why the patient is coming back to our office and still complaining about dental pain? To answer these questions, we have here today uh, with us Dr. Gary Klasser, who's past president of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. He's currently professor in the Department of Diagnostic Sciences at the Louisiana State University School of Dentistry and the director of the LSU Orofacial Pain Continuum. Dr. Klasser is a renowned expert in the field and has published numerous peer-reviewed scientific articles as well as co-edited several textbooks related to orofacial pain. Among them, I would like to mention the American Academy Orofacial Pain Guidelines for the Assessment, Diagnosis, and Management of Orofacial Pain. Welcome, Dr. Klasser, and thank you so much for joining us today in this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain podcast. I would like to start uh, by asking you, why do patients continue to experience pain even if the dental treatment has been perfectly executed? And in those cases, can we diagnose that condition as a typical facial pain? Is that a good diagnosis? So what we call this condition when the procedure, whatever the procedure that has been performed, um, and everything appears to be both radiographically and clinically successful, there is this, for some reason, continuation of what we call persistent pain. And really what happens with this persistent pain it's often related to another term that we use called neuropathic pain. And what happens in neuropathic pain is that noxious impulses originate from an abnormality in the neural structures. So you have normal somatic structures, and that's why your clinical exam is usually unremarkable, but you basically end up with uh, an abnormal response 
from these neural structures. This is essentially uh, maladaptive, and it's potentially persistent. It's relatively unprotective and unsupported of normal healing and repair. So another term that we use to describe this particular pain is called dysfunctional pain. And what dysfunctional pain is, is essentially an amplification of nociceptive signaling in the absence, and that's the key word, of either inflammation or neural lesions. The International Association for the Study of Pain has come up with a new term called nosoplastic pain. And their definition is pain that arises from altered nociception despite no real clear evidence of actual or threatened tissue damage causing the activation of peripheral nociceptors or evidence for disease or lesion of the somatosensory system causing the pain. And they use two other terms called algopathic, which is a pathological perception or sensation of pain not generated by injury, and nosopathic, which is a pathological, if you will, a not normal state of nociception. So I think that is in the best way explaining this persistent pain, despite the practitioner doing everything in their power to provide a adequate intervention. As for the second question, uh, is atypical facial pain a good term to use for this type of presentation? And I guess being a little cynical, I would say that if something is atypical, then how do we define what is typical facial pain? So to me, this is not a very good term. It's really a catch-all wastebasket term. And I think currently the International Classification of Headache Disorders, version 3, have too much better described pain conditions that account for what I have just uh, presented. One is persistent idiopathic facial pain, and the other being painful post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy. Mm -hmm. So uh, what would be then the difference between these two terms, the persistent idiopathic facial pain and the painful post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy then? Uh, there... There are differences between the two. There are certainly diagnostic criteria for each one. Uh, we're not going to go into all the various criteria. So I'm just going to highlight some of the differences. In persistent idiopathic facial pain, and the reason why I like that term is it's because it is the words are descriptive, if you will, of the particular condition uh, that a patient presents to you in the office. Uh, a couple of the key components with persistent idiopathic facial pain, um, it's often poorly localized, and it doesn't really follow the distribution of a peripheral nerve. When you do a clinical neurological examination or a screening, if you will, 
usually it appears normal. And of course, a dental cause has been excluded by appropriate investigations. In terms of the painful post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy, again, if we look at the wording of that particular condition, there's a history of an identifiable traumatic event to the trigeminal nerve. Also, there is clinically evidence either positive and or negative neurological signs due to this trigeminal nerve dysfunction. So some positive neurological signs would be something called hyperalgesia or allodynia, and some of the negative neurological signs would be considered hypoesthesia or hypoalgesia. Now, I think another important point to realize, um, if somebody is listening to this particular uh, podcast, uh, it gets a little confusing. It's almost as though there's a continuum that exists between this persistent idiopathic facial pain induced by often insignificant trauma to the painful post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy which is caused, obviously, by a significant insult to the trigeminal system. How prevalent are these conditions in the dental practice? Which are the dental procedures that can cause that insult and can trigger that painful post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy then? I wish I could answer the prevalence question in a very scientific manner. Uh, Unfortunately... Trigeminal neuropathy is not well described in the literature. Uh, Clearly, trigeminal neuralgia, and please don't confuse a neuralgia with a neuropathy, is much better described. So often, it depends upon what article one is reading and referencing when they talk about prevalence regarding trigeminal neuropathy. In essence... Uh, the persistent idiopathic facial pain seems to have a prevalence between 0.03 to 1%, where the uh, post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy, chronic pain seems to develop uh, in 3 to 5% of these particular individuals. Now, this is based on very loose science. Um, I guess the point being, it's relatively a rare event considering the number of dental procedures that are done on individuals on a worldwide daily basis. Um, To answer the uh, question as to what procedures or what dental procedures might be a stimulus for these kind of dysfunctional pains. In essence, any traumatic event in the broadest sense, it can be mechanical, and dentists perform mechanical procedures on a daily basis. It can be biological, and by biological, I mean it can involve a bacterial, viral, or fungal invasion. It may be chemical, 
because unfortunately we know that individuals who undergo chemotherapy uh, can certainly present with these dysfunctional pains. And then it can be radiological. So those seem to be the main stimulators to create this particular problem. I would think as we funnel it down to dentistry, uh, three main procedures that dentists perform on a daily basis uh, come to mind. Um, endodontic procedures, and the endodontic literature would suggest that there's a 3 to 7% risk or prevalence, if you will, of experiencing persistent pain after a clinically and radial successfully performed endodontic procedure. Uh, certainly, oral maxillofacial surgeons understand the risk when it comes to third molar surgery. And looking at the literature, there is often a um, temporary uh, situation that is created with nerves in 8% of the cases and a permanent relationship when it comes uh, in about 3.5% of all cases with um, slightly higher prevalence involving the lingual nerve as compared to the inferior alveolar nerve. When it comes to dental implants, uh, there was a very nice article done by Vasquez Delgado et al. in 2018, and they looked at dental implants in a university-based surgery department and they came up with a 0.3% prevalence when it came to the uh, post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy. They also had a 0.5% prevalence as a trigeminal neuropathy without pain. And when you looked at the combination of the two, it was a 0.8% prevalence. Uh, again, it seemed in their study that gender was a factor and age was a factor with being greater than 60 years and females more represented uh, than males. So again, these particular conditions don't occur that often, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, the prevalence doesn't seem to be that high. And I think you had already kind of asked, uh, answered the question that I had for you is, was related to are there any risk factors that we can anticipate uh, for the development of this type of condition? And most importantly, is there anything that we can do as general dentists prior to the dental treatment to try to prevent them from happening? So certainly there are risk factors. Um, this is not a particular easy subject uh, to study. But when we look at the endodontic literature, uh, it seems that um, the longer there is preoperative persistent pain, uh, the greater the likelihood that this may continue even after the procedure is done. And the cutoff seems to be uh, greater than three months of this persistent pain. Uh, another key factor is, was the tooth involved uh, preoperatively uh, painful? Uh, and what was the intensity of the pain? It seemed that the greater the intensity of the pain preoperatively, again, that 
increase the risk of having this persistent pain um, after the procedure. Again, when we look at uh, gender, for whatever reason, females seem to be more represented with this problem uh, than males. When we move to the dental implant uh, literature, again, many of the uh, same conditions exist as they do in endodontics. But one other very interesting factor is the experience of the individual placing the implant. And the more experienced one is in doing the procedure, seems to be an association with less risk of developing uh, the persistent pain. Also, in dental implants, the less uh, invasive injury in terms of uh, preparing the site for the implant and the less trauma involved in placing the implant seems to have a bearing whether, in fact, somebody will develop this persistent pain. With third molar surgery, um, one of the biggest factors, again, was the experience of the individual uh, extracting uh, the tooth. Again, females more than males. And again, a fully impacted tooth seemed to have a greater prevalence um, than if it was a more simple extraction. I think two other real key factors that we're just starting to understand are the genetics. What does that patient come to the table with? As well as environmental factors, the epigenetics. What environment does that human being exist in that may predispose them, if you will, to having this sort of pain or the skill set and the barriers around them that almost prevents them or decreases their risk of having the pain, I think are two other very important considerations. What is it that dentists can do to maybe increase their odds of not experiencing this kind of problem with their patients? One of the things dentists do on a daily basis is provide local anesthesia. That's almost like a preemptive analgesia. In other words, it shuts down the nociceptive input going from the periphery to the central nervous system. And I think it's probably because we perform local anesthesia and we do it very, very well because we want comfortable patients that we see the low prevalence of this occurring in our dental population. Again, I think that's a good thing. I think dentists are excellent at providing local anesthesia, and I think providing this, shall we say in quotations, preemptive analgesia is a very important factor in decreasing the risk of having these persistent pains. So um, in the dental practice, how can we as dentists diagnose which patients are suffering from these conditions, this neuropathic pain in the orofacial pain region? So diagnosis is everything. Uh, you have to have a diagnosis before you come up with a management plan, treatment plan, or intervention. 
I can't overstress the importance of taking a thorough history. Patients will tell you the problems and the disease that they have if we take the time to listen to their story. And often, unfortunately, we don't spend as much time as we probably should in taking a thorough history. Uh, This certainly is then enhanced by performing a clinical exam. And then uh, this is really often a diagnosis by exclusion. If we've ruled everything out, why does this person continue to have pain? We shouldn't have blinders on, but we should basically take a broad view and think, okay, there's probably some other reason why this patient has presented to us. The other very important factor is words certainly have meaning. And there's words that patients use that are associated with neuropathic pain. They would be burning, shooting, tingling, pins and needles, itching, numbness. All those words have a neuropathic quality as compared to non-neuropathic words such as dull, achy, sore. So you're not going to make a diagnosis based on words, but that's certainly valuable information. Uh, We may want to do adjunctive testing. Uh, Placing topical anesthetic over the area gives us an idea of the efficacy of potential a management approach and or does just placing a topical anesthesia over the area that the patient's complaining about might give us an indicator if this is a more peripheral problem or a central problem. Doing diagnostic local anesthetic injections is an important factor because if somebody has a toothache and it's of odontogenic origin, then usually by providing local anesthetic, the pain will diminish. If it's neuropathic, often the patient will say, yes, I'm numb, but I still have pain in that particular tooth. Sometimes we have to use hematological studies, um, imaging, and imaging may be all the way from dental images to medical images, such as a, a cone beam CT scan or an MRI. And of course, we should never forget we have the ability to consult with allied health professionals and we can always refer this patient to get additional opinions. I'm a big believer that treating these patients often requires a multidisciplinary approach. Additionally, there are neuropathic screening tools that have been used. However, and a disclaimer when I say this, These are not specific for orofacial pain. Uh, We can also use some very simple neurosensory testing mechanisms. Uh, Take your finger and touch the patient's trigeminal areas. We can use a distinction. Can the patient discern the difference between dull and sharp or even between something that's cold 
or something that's warm. So I think those are real simple tools that you don't need uh, expensive equipment or spend a lot of time, and it can provide a lot of interesting information. So once we had diagnosed our patients with a neuropathic pain condition, what are the management options available that we had? You had mentioned previously that multidisciplinary approach. Is dental treatment indicated at all in these cases? And is the role of a dentist, uh, should they be managing this type of patients? Uh, these are all very good questions. The management approach uh, really, uh, in my mind, uh, accompanies three different approaches, although one can use these approaches in combination. So the first approach may be involving behavioral medicine. Uh, clearly, if we can institute coping skills or provide the foundation to our patients of learning coping skills, the power of the mind to overcome somatic problems is huge. Uh, there are also pharmacological therapies, and pharmacological therapies can entail two different therapies and or used in combination, and that may be with the use of topical medications and or with the use of um, certainly uh, systemic medications. And that gets into a whole different area. And then sometimes there are uh, surgical approaches, and those tend to be more invasive. They tend to be more expensive, and that's something that a dentist certainly wouldn't do. That would usually be done by somebody involved in the world of neurology. Now, we have to remember, what is the goal here? And to me, in my mind, I would love to cure all my patients. But I know that when we're treating neuropathic pain, that's a very lofty height to try and reach. My goal is to potentially decrease their pain by 30 to 50%. So not 100%, 30 to 50%. And if I think I have done that, that is success. Uh, I think the number one thing we have to give our patients is hope. Because when people don't hope, it usually ends with a very, very sad ending. So I always endorse my patients with the fact that you are not the first person I have ever seen with this particular problem. There are many different strategies that we can try. And with that, you know, I'd like to think that we're going to improve your quality of life. From a mechanistic side, there are many, many medications that we can trial that may be correct or the correct cocktail, if you will, for that individual patient. And in our minds, we have to start thinking, do we want to work more on the peripheral nervous system, maybe by altering sodium channels? Do we want to maybe work at the spinal cord and work on calcium channels or something called N-methyl-D-aspartate channels? Do we want to work maybe higher up in the descending endogenous opioid system 
by working on maybe opioid receptors um, and or serotonin or and or norepinephrine receptors. Um, so we have many, many different choices of where we can mechanistically stratify our anti-neurologic agents. In a wonderful article published in Lancet Neurology, uh, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis provided for pharmacotherapy for neuropathic pain, where we have first-line, second-line, and third-line drugs. But again, remember, this was not specific for trigeminal neuropathies. So the goal of a management is, number one, I always do this with all my patients. I educate them. I want them to understand their problem, and I want to reassure them that they probably will not die because of the problem they're experiencing. They may die with the problem, but not because of. This isn't like a tumor or a malignant tumor that if you don't get treatment, the end result will not be particularly good. I also want to provide my patients with realistic expectations. I want to frame the situation so they're not looking at me like, well, you told me I could cure you. And I say, I've removed cure from my language. I can manage your pain the same way we can manage diabetes. We cannot cure diabetes. I also validate their pain complaint because I often get from my patients, doctor, do you think I am crazy? And I say, no, I do not think you are crazy. Yes, it's to do with your head, but your head isn't working any differently than anybody else's. It is having some dysfunction or dysregulation in some areas of the nervous system. And I tell all my patients that I'm basically in the improvement of quality of life business. That's my goal. Now, the question is, should um, dental interventions be used here? And what the literature would suggest is that additional damage to an already dysfunctional nervous system only enhances or exacerbates the pain intensity. So if you think another endodontic procedure, another extraction, another implant on one of these individuals who has an ongoing persistent pain of neuropathic origin, I would say to you, you're traveling down the wrong road and there's a chance that the patient may return to you to say, you know what? My pain wasn't so bad when I walked in here, but now it's really bad. So I would say you need to be thinking about what's going on. And if it doesn't make sense, you're not compelled as a dentist to provide another intervention. And can dentists provide proper management for this? It all depends on the dentist training. Um, if you feel you have the knowledge and the expertise to, in fact, handle these patients, uh, then you certainly have the green light to do so. I would say that most dentist education, while in dental school, or even continuing education courses once they have 
finish dental school don't really prepare them to handle these kind of situations. So every dentist who has a patient like this, I think should certainly consider finding, associating with a practitioner with expertise in these conditions. And there are orofacial pain practitioners like myself in the country that are well-trained to manage these kind of situations. In what about those cases in which the general dentist might realize that there is a clear evidence of that nerve damage during the dental procedure itself? For example, what about whenever they are placing the implant, if they realize that they might be in close relation with the nerve or maybe during the thermal or extraction? Is there anything that can be done or what would you recommend to do in those early stages of insult to the system? So that's a very, very good question. And um, we're now looking at really an acute situation as compared to a chronic situation. So as for the case of a dental implant, um, if a dental implant is placed and the patient comes back with the symptoms I've previously described, and it's within 24 to 48 hours of placement in the implant, then I would recommend removing the implant. In other words, removing the insult, placing the patient on fairly high doses of a strong anti-inflammatory. I would use something like steroids or a medral dose pack. And then I would even provide them with an anti-neuroleptic agent, possibly like a tricyclic antidepressant. So I'm trying to, using a very non-scientific term, uh, nip the problem in the bud and hopefully allow the system or give the system some additional tools to reverse the process. It's the same thing in terms of if you have an infection, Your immune system kicks in, but sometimes you need that antibiotic not to destroy the entire bacterial biome in your body, but just to give your immune system a little bump up uh, or a little extra help to overcome the problem. With third molar surgery, there's really two conditions. Um, if there's an observed nerve injury, you're extracting a third molar and you damage the nerve, then you should try and do a nerve repair procedure. Often they're not observed or not witnessed, and that's where it gets a little more tricky. But there can be still nerve repair procedures done. Usually within six months, you can have relative success. Nine months is probably pushing the envelope. Again, um, if this happened with third molars, I would take the same approach as I mentioned with dental implants. You mentioned before how important it was to give hope to our patients. What can we tell them about the prognosis of this type of neuropathic pain conditions? Again, and I, and I know I've repeated myself, uh, we want to improve the quality of life and we want to manage rather than cure. I wish I could say 
in an honest manner that all my patients, after a certain period of time, walk out being cured. It was something that was transitory and life is good again. Unfortunately, that's not true. If we look at prognosis when it comes to trigeminal neuropathy, and unfortunately, again, the scientific literature is not very strong on this. There hasn't been a lot of studies performed looking at this. Um, it's somewhat mm, skeptical. Uh, there's a very good study done by Haviv uh, and others. And what they did is they compared, if you will, um, two neuropathic pain conditions. They compared classical trigeminal neuralgia after intervention to, again, uh, the uh, post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy after several in interventions. And what they found was, unfortunately, in the post-traumatic trigeminal neuropathy, only 11% of their patients had a greater than 50% reduction in pain intensity. Um, unfortunately, uh, when it came comparing that to the trigeminal neuralgia, the trigeminal neuralgia patients had about a 80% reduction in pain intensity. So, to tell your patients that they are, you are going to provide them with cure might be misleading. Therefore, I always say I merely manage the pain rather than cure the pain. Thank you, Dr. Klasser. That was very interesting. In this last few minutes that we have left, I always like to ask our guests if there's anything else that you would like to add that we haven't maybe mentioned, and how do you envision the future of this field? The good news is I think things are much better in the year 2019 than they were in the year 1995. I think we have a much better understanding of the process of neuropathic pain. I think we have a much better armamentarium to utilize and to help our patients improve their quality of life through a pharmaceutical approach. So the good news is scientific knowledge is advancing when it comes to trigeminal neuropathies. I think Practitioners are getting now more education to recognize, I didn't say manage, but at least recognize these trigeminal neuropathies. I think as we advance in our knowledge regarding genetics uh, and epigenetics, it will certainly enhance our understanding of what is involved in the chronification of pain. Why do so many dental procedures go on on a daily basis worldwide, yet very, very few people end up with this particular condition? I think we're starting to understand that better. Long term, I think the goal, we're not there yet, but we're getting there, is we are going to have patient-specific targeted approaches. We're going to be able to perform genetic analysis on our patients and saying, you know, 
you have this particular problem. I don't think a tricyclic antidepressant is going to work to you based upon your genetic profile. However, you are very amenable to have a positive result, maybe with a gabapentinoid. So we're not there yet, but I think we're getting there. So I am very optimistic about the future when it comes to these dysfunctional, persistent neuropathic pains involving the trigeminal nervous system. Thank you so much, Dr. Klasser. This has been very, very interesting. We really appreciate you taking your time to answer our questions. Thank you. Uh, it's been my pleasure, and I thank you very much as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you had enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.